0: A journey into
1: sound, brought to you in
0: living color on WTDR.
1: In the beginning, the end. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and
0: splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to
1: stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else.
0: Information in the form of energy Streams in, streams in simultaneously in the form of energy, our sense, resist. and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like, it explodes into this A technical dream. And in this moment, we are perfect, we are perfect, we are whole, we, we are and we are beautiful. all the danger. of your own mind. Whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it is your mind which creates you.
1: Another public service message from Way Out. We care about your world.
0: Tuned. My guest is Alan Fogel. He's a Rosen Method bodywork practitioner and senior teacher. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Utah and the author of several books on emotional development from infancy to adulthood. And his new book that we'll be talking about is Restorative Embodiment and Resilience A Guide to Disrupt Habits create inner peace, deepen relationships, and feel greater presence. Alan, welcome.
1: Thanks, Tony. I'm glad to be here.
0: So I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed reading this book.
1: Well, that always makes me feel good.
0: (laughs) It's so wonderful how language has evolved over the years to reflect our growing understanding of this uh, realm of embodied self-awareness.
1: Yeah, I really think that's true. There's been uh, kind of a renaissance, in a way, of writing and speaking and practicing in very different realms across the spectrum of healing modalities, you know, about bringing our, our embodiment to life, so partly my own language being invented, but also borrowing from sort of the general atmosphere of what's being talked about today.
0: Yeah, there's a wonderfully wide range of exploration of this vast field. So let's begin by talking about modern Western notions and objectification of the mind and body and how that differs from the reality or direct experience of mind and body and how that fundamental difference affects our experience of ourselves and the way we experience the world around us. Okay.
1: So you're probably aware that this is something that has been talked about in philosophical circles and psychological circles and embodiment circles. This whole idea of the artificial distinction between mind and body. and a lot of blame goes onto the shoulders of René Descartes, who was the one who said, I think, therefore I am. I think there was more depth to what Descartes had to say, but I'm not necessarily here to defend them, but it's just the basic idea that thought is such a pervasive form of human experience that we live most of our day and actually most of our night in dreams thinking. So... It's only natural, I think it's only natural to assume that our thoughts are somehow separate from the rest of us. And another curious thing about the way our body is put together is that thoughts seem to come from inside of our heads. Whereas if we have an ache or a pain or an itch or a soreness or an emotional feeling those things seem to come from some location in our body. Now, in actual fact, if you look at the neuroscience of both thinking and feeling, they're both highly constructed from inputs from both the brain, which is inside the head, and the rest of the body. So if you look, for example, at how children learn language, we're pretty sure, although there's probably some controversy about this, But we're pretty sure that children don't have thoughts in their heads the same way that we as adults do before they're about four or five years old. But we know that children start speaking in language, in sentences and words, by the time they're about a year and a half. So what's happening in that period between a year and a half and four in terms of words and thoughts? So if the child is able to speak words But is not really able to think them in his or her head, then that means that the speech and the hearing of the speech is a very embodied experience. And if we look at children of that age, they're talking about very concrete things that they're actually doing with their bodies. Like they'll narrate, like, you know, I'm playing with this dolly, and dolly says this, and I said this, and or I'm banging on this peg, or um, there are words about feelings, you know, the child may be expressing to a parent why he or she is sad. So the child is narrating something that the body is doing or experiencing. And most of the words, if you look at the vocabulary the content of the vocabulary of words spoken to children of that age it's about very very concrete things that there's not a lot of use of metaphor or you know linguistic artifice so the origins of language are fundamentally in the body and then something shifts around the age of 4 or 5 and children begin to have what's called private speech which is they talk to themselves about things that they're doing. So, you know, a child playing with a doll might say, Oh, Dolly's sad. I I have to help Dolly. What's wrong with Dolly? I have to see what's going on. Why are you sad, Dolly? So the child is narrating vocally about what she or he is doing in the moment. So that's called private speech because it's actual speech. But it's something that the child is doing without any conversational partner. So, still at that point, language is still very much embodied. It is about something that's being done in the moment or being felt in the moment. And then, somehow around the age of five, some changes happen in the brain, and the parts of the brain that we call the speech centers begin to become more developed. They're the same centers that the child had used for spoken language and for private speech, but they begin to appear as thoughts in the head. And as, so far as we know, the thoughts for young children are still mostly about something that's embodied, something that they've experienced or that they're experiencing. Abstract thought of a story that talks about the past or the future or things that aren't there in the moment, that doesn't start to appear until seven or eight years of age, and it really doesn't become kind of logical, abstract thinking until 11 or 12 years of age. So for a good part of childhood, language, spoken or thought language, is very much related to what is happening concretely in the moment. So you could say that the origins of thinking is basically embodied. It's basically part of who we are. So that when, you know, these thoughts that come online, for us as adults are so pervasive, a good portion of them are related to what we're experiencing in our bodies. And we may not even be aware of that because thoughts are often about Thinking over what we did earlier that day, or what we said, or what we heard, or what somebody said to us, or um, we're kind of going over things that happened to us. Again, those are our embodied, concrete, in-the-moment life experiences that become all of a sudden transformed into thinking, and one other thing that I'll say about that is that that thinking comes from a very different region of the brain than feeling. So when we're thinking about something, even if it's something that we felt earlier, we can no longer feel it. And the opposite is true. That is, if we're feeling something, like something moves us to tears or, you know, we become sad or angry or whatever the feeling is, we're not necessarily thinking about it like the thought circuits are kind of shut down when we're actually giving in to what we're really feeling. So those two things are mutually exclusive, which is another reason why, because they come from different circuits in the brain and the body, that it gives us the impression that thought and feeling or mind and body are somehow separate when actually they're not. Mm
0: -hmm. That's fascinating, and I love the way... You described all of that, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time to do that. So maybe we could get into the task positive network and the default mode network of the brain and how they work and how they, well, you you kind of described how, how they've sort of evolved out of more direct embodied thinking
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, it takes up a chunk of one of the early chapters of the book. Um, Those are two of the fundamental kinds of thinking that we do as humans. And I don't want to put down thinking. I mean, thinking is an amazing human talent. And as far as we know, other animals have something like a thought process. The thoughts may be in the form of reliving a feeling or something that was seen or, you know, memories of things that the animal experienced. Those are things that are happening for most vertebrate animals anyway. Some kind of sense of memory or remembering or, you know, my cat, for example, goes to the same places and smells the same things. So somehow she knows, knows in quotes, she has some kind of thought process that brings that up for her. But it's not thinking in words. That's what distinguishes human thoughts, is thinking in language. Now, of course, we can also think in images, and we can also think in sounds. We can think in music. But language is our primary mode of thought. Mm-hmm. Were you going to add something?
0: I was just going to say animals and other vertebrates, um, thinking... That sort of thinking is so that they can learn from experience.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a highly evolved, you know, very special trait of vertebrate animals. And, of course, the more we know about elephants, dolphins, most domesticated animals, they have fairly sophisticated thought processes and communication processes with other members of their species. So there's a lot going on in terms of thinking, but again, it's the kind of thought that is actually neither task positive nor default mode because it's thinking in smells and in sounds and in images, and it's not necessarily a logical kind of thinking. So just to distinguish in human thought the task positive from the default mode, the task positive is called that because it's the kind of thinking we do when we're engaged in a task, when we have to think things through. So it could be, you know, a problem at work that we're trying to figure out, or it could be, you know, how to get the ingredients ready to cook a meal, or it could be how to take care of a child in the best way. It doesn't really matter as long as it's we're working toward a goal we're thinking about. Well... I could do this, or I could do that, or this might be better, or that might be better. And it's highly adaptive. I mean, it really helps us to organize complex behaviors, even things like athletics or music in the stages of learning how to do a tennis stroke, for example, or, you know, ski down a mountain or something like that, or in the early stages of learning to play a musical instrument, we have to think about what we're doing. We have to kind of take it in small steps, and usually we're with an instructor who's explaining in language, and then we're internalizing those thought processes. Now, once we get to a point of mastery over certain kinds of things, we don't have to think about them anymore. They become more automatic but at least in the learning stages, task-positive thinking. And any time we're learning something new or doing something new or solving a new problem, that's where the task-positive network comes into play. And I would say that, gosh, at least 50% or more of our day is spent in task-positive thinking. It comes from a different network of the brain related but different from what's called the default mode network. And the default mode network is pretty interesting actually because it was only recently discovered, I would say maybe 10 years ago. It was discovered and named and it just came about because people who are doing MRI studies and giving people mental tasks, MRI meaning magnetic resonance imaging that they do to find the regions of the brain that are active You know, they would put people in an MRI machine and they would give them a task, a math problem to solve and see which area the brain is lighting up or, you know, that sort of thing. And they began to notice just serendipitously that when, in the downtime, when the person wasn't solving any particular problems that the experiment was giving them, there was another part, a related but a different part of the brain that was lighting up and... Then the experimenter would ask, well, what was happening during that period? And the person would say, oh, I was just kind of mulling over what I had just said or thinking about what somebody said to me. So that became known as the default mode network, network meaning the network of nerve cells in the brain that supports this kind of thinking which is not directed toward a task, that is, when we're off task. And our mind goes to places like reviewing and rehearsing or rehashing or rethinking. And there's actually two kinds of default mode network thinking that are important in my perspective that have also been written about scientifically. One is when the thoughts that we're thinking when we're off task are helpful in some way, you know, like we're... Thinking about a conversation we have with somebody and we're thinking about, well, what could I have said that might have made a difference? Or I was so happy I said what I said. Or we go over the conversation in our minds. Or default mode network thinking can happen like when we're, let's say we're done with our task and we go to the gym or we go outside and take a run or, you know, we do something to change, you know, the picture, so to speak. And then while we're doing those things, or or just sitting around, default mode thoughts come into our head that are reviewing and rehashing. But default mode thoughts can also be creative. Like when we're not specifically trying so hard to solve a problem, the solution just comes, you know, in this default mode network in a very creative and spontaneous way. So that's what I call modulated default mode thinking. It's modulated because it's working for us. Modulation is a synonym of regulation. So it helps us. It's like the twin of test positive thinking, but each twin has a different personality and a different function and a different purpose. There's also what I call this regulated default mode network thinking. And that's when those thoughts that are just spinning around in our head, you know, where we're going over a conversation, become more negative or troubling or worrisome. So we might think, oh, I'm such a jerk, you know, I said the stupidest things, I'm the worst person in the world. Or we might think, when I was at the gym, I just felt so fat or so thin or... I couldn't do anything or nothing was working right for me and nothing is good. So that's when our default mode thoughts, which are kind of that, you know, off task, that they start to spin out of control and they lead us down often negative and disruptive pathways of worry and what's called rumination. Dysregulated default mode thinking can also be about things like addictive urges, you know, planning where we're going to get our next fix or thinking about things over and over again about how we're going to get some kind of satisfaction. They can also be dangerous, you know, we can be thinking about how we're going to get back at somebody or attack somebody or be mean to somebody. So it's the same kind of thinking, you know, kind of unregulated, off-task, but in modulated In a modulated form, it has a real purpose. In dysregulated form, it's actually unhealthy. If we stay too long in those modes, we're subject to anxiety, depression, acting out, all kinds of disorders. And it also impacts our physical health as well when we're staying too long in dysregulated thinking.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating area. I remember when I was first learning about the default mode network. I had this association with the word default as being that these were these old uh, patterns of thinking that we developed earlier on in our lives, usually through trauma or or just the kind of feedback we got from people around us when we were growing up, and that it just there were like these tape loops that just kind of unconsciously kept running over and over again, and in a way short-circuiting, our higher thinking.
1: Yes, that's exactly right, in the sense that when we're in a dysregulated state, going over and over again, an old wound or an old trauma, I think the origin of the word default, at least from the scientists who kind of discovered it and developed it, that's where our mind goes when we're not doing anything else. So it's just the default state. But what you're saying is also very important, that when we're dysregulated, when we're reliving old traumas and we can't get out of it, and when we're struggling, when we're worrying, when we're thinking about doing harm to ourselves or others, that's kind of a, let's say, a post-traumatic stress default mode way of thinking. So I agree with you in that sense.
0: Mm-hmm. So now that could lead us into talking about those dysregulated, modulated, and restorative ways that we experience ourselves.
1: Yeah. So in my book, I do define those three different states, dysregulated, modulated, and restorative. And this is something that came to me after many years of private practice in my particular clinical discipline, which is Rosen Method bodywork. But I've also noticed it in my own life, and I see it in other people, just in ordinary, everyday life. And It also came out of a research study that I did with Rosie method practitioners and clients where it seemed like where people were going, so to speak, with what they were talking about or experiencing could be fit into these three categories. And, And I found those three categories to be Helpful in describing kind of three basic states of human consciousness about ourselves. So these are all ways we experience ourselves. And that's important, Tonio, because we also have a whole set of neural networks devoted to the way we experience the external world, like sight and sound and taste and, you know, the so called five senses. I'm talking about the way we experience the inner condition of our bodies. And that's not written about as much. That's not talked about as much. And that's sort of the fundamental nature of embodiment is how we live inside of our human skin, inside of our human skeleton, inside of our human organs, including the brain. So just briefly, the dysregulated state is composed of what we already talked about, dysregulated default mode thinking, where we can't escape from those thoughts. We have the feeling that they're just going to go on and on and on and haunt us forever, you know, the harm that was done to us or the harm that we're going to do to somebody else, the worries that we have. But there's also, I distinguish between thinking and feeling. Now, you could say that's mind and body, but... Both thinking and feeling are part of the head and the body. They're distributed across all of the functional systems of the human body. So instead of saying mind and body, I'm saying thinking and feeling. But it's important to just be clear that thinking is what appears to come from the head, although it's clearly embodied, as we've already talked about. And feeling or felt experience, like you know, do I feel warm or cold or do I feel itchy or do I feel tense? Or what do I feel about my body boundaries and safety and all of those kinds of things or posture or balance? Those are all felt experiences as well as feeling our hearts beating and our ourselves breathing and things like sexual arousal. Those are all felt experiences that come from the body as well as emotions, which are felt experience, which are kind of embodied evaluations of any of the other felt experiences. So, for example, if I'm feeling warm, I might feel happy about feeling warm, emotionally happy about feeling warm, if it's a cold day and I'm all bundled up and sitting in front of a source of heat. But I might feel emotionally unhappy or disgusted if it's a hot, humid day and I'm sweating and I'm uncomfortable and sticky. So the same, what's called interoception, embodied feeling, can be evaluated differently via different emotional pathways. So those are all in the realm of what I call felt experience, or generally feelings. So coming back to the dysregulated state, we have these dysregulated thoughts in the default mode, but we also have dysregulated feelings. So that's when we have like a pain that won't go away. It's like rumination in thought. It's rumination in pain or an addictive urge that won't go away. In other words, we're stuck. We have this feeling of being stuck in the felt experience. In the same way that in the default mode dysregulation we have the feeling of being stuck in the thought pattern. So dysregulation or dysregulated embodied self awareness is both thinking and feeling and you know, just in a word, it's about feeling stuck, like can't I can't escape from this. I'm never gonna get out of this agony that I'm feeling. I'm never gonna get out of this grief. I'm never going to get out of this uncomfortable feeling. I'm never going to get away from these horrible thoughts. That's dysregulation. Did you want to ask me a question about that or say anything before I go on to the other two states?
0: Well, I'll just add that what you just described is something that I'm pretty sure that we all have experienced many, many times.
1: Yes. I don't know about you, but I get dysregulated At least once or twice a day, (laughs) depending on circumstances, um, you know, especially as I get older, I'm 76 now, you know, it's harder for me to stay, you know, in a more modulated state. I just don't have the resilience that I used to have. So it's easier for me to get pains that don't go away or to worry about things that I didn't used to worry about. But it doesn't matter what your age is, you could be 10 years old, and you could still slip into dysregulated states, depending on whether you feel support in your environment from other people, depending on your state of health, depending on your social networks, etc., cetera, et cetera. So dysregulation is quite common, and it's I mean, we'd have to say it's one of the three forms of human consciousness. It just is. It's just part of who we are. Mm -hmm. So that's a good question.
0: Yeah. And also, in our present state of affairs in the world, many of us are, are continually being triggered toward dysregulation.
1: Yes. That is really a great observation. And especially, you know, with the pandemic, I think with more social isolation, with You know, all the things that have come with the fears that have come with that. I think all of us are just feeling more dysregulated. And and so many things that are happening in the world, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. There's something that you're worrying about. There's something that you're discouraged about, about the way the world is turning, about what's happening. So there's just so much going on in the world today. The pandemic being, you know, putting a gloss on the whole thing that. I think if you or one of your listeners is feeling more dysregulated than you're used to feeling, there's a good reason for that.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's get into modulated states and how they lead us toward the potential of restorative states.
1: Uh-huh. So modulated states are where we we don't necessarily feel stuck. So Modulated states is where most of us live most of the time, unless we have a mental health problem, for example, or a post-traumatic stress. But ordinary day-to-day things that we do, you know, getting up, getting our teeth brushed, getting our breakfast together, going to work, you know, taking care of our kids, we're pretty much in a modulated state. We're thinking in a task-positive way, about things that we're doing, we're functioning in the world. We may feel overwhelmed, like uh, a moment of dysregulation, like, this is just too much for me, you know, this work is just driving me nuts. But in a modulated state, we can think our way back to stability. We can say, oh, yeah, that's just my boss, you know, that's just the way she is or he is, or You know, if I just stop and take a few breaths, I can calm myself down. So we have strategies in modulated states. Often they are task-positive thinking strategies that we can remind ourselves to do. I'm getting tired, I need to take a break. Okay, we can tell ourselves that in our thoughts. So most of modulation is thinking. Now, we also have felt experiences in modulated states but they tend to be fairly brief because modulation is primarily about thinking our way through problems or thinking our way out of feeling dysregulated. So we get a brief glimpse of slipping into an old dysregulated pattern and then we have a set of tools perhaps that we learn in a yoga class or a therapy session or by reading, you know, online self-help sites or whatever we learned about how to bring ourselves back, so to speak. So we feel something briefly, and it serves as a kind of reminder, so to speak, to bring ourselves back into a thought process that helps us modulate. On the other hand, we can also have happy experiences, like let's suppose we're at a family gathering or a work meeting, and we're all in positive mode. We're thinking about what we want to say. We're listening to other people. We may be solving problems. We may be telling jokes. It doesn't really matter. But something funny occurs, and we're laughing. And all of a sudden, we're feeling this moment of enjoyment and pleasure. But it doesn't last long. We go right back into the conversation. We go right back into solving the problem or telling the story or whatever it is. So that's the nature of thinking and felt experience during modulated states. They're pretty much controlled, let's say, under control, kept within bounds that are reasonably well managed and handled. So modulation is another way of saying, you know, self-management or self-regulation.
0: Mm-hmm. So now describe the restorative state.
1: Okay. So restorative embodied self-awareness, as I call it, is really fundamentally different from the other two states. And one of the reasons that it's fundamentally different is that it does not, it does not involve either the task positive network or the default mode network because restorative embodied self-awareness is primarily a state in which felt experience takes prominence. We're totally in the present moment with our feelings, whatever those feelings might be. And we're not being distracted away from those feelings by thinking about them. So in the book, I use the example of what's called emotional intelligence. This is a fairly standard tool that taught in lots of different ways. It's even used in, you know, business consulting and business management to help employees and bosses deal with the emotions, the inevitable emotions that come up at work. So emotional intelligence is, because the word intelligence is there, it's about thinking our way through emotions. So, you know, in a meeting at work, somebody might start to feel angry. And Emotional intelligence gives us the skills to say to ourselves or to hear from someone, oh, you're getting angry, you're getting frustrated. Let's slow down here. Let's see if we can figure out what triggered that. Let's come back. Let's look back at the person who said something and see if there's something else we can say to clarify the meaning. So we're having emotions, but we're we're controlling them by by a thought process. In restorative states, on the other hand, the emotions have free reign. That is, we are able to feel our anger. And when I say feel our anger, I'm giving just one example. It could be happiness, it could be sadness, but we're feeling it in a way that we're not acting on it. This is super important. One of the things that I didn't mention about the difference between the three states is what's called the autonomic nervous system, which has two branches, the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic branch. And in the sympathetic branch is when we're on, when we're doing things, when we're aroused, when we're activated. So if we're sympathetically activated with anger in a modulated state, we might be moved to say something in an angry way, but we're doing something. Anytime we're doing something, we're sympathetically aroused. If we're angry in a dysregulated state, we might be motivated to verbally abuse somebody or attack somebody. So coming back to restorative states, if we're feeling anger, we're not sympathetically aroused. In fact, Our anger is just a felt experience. It's not something that we act on. Now this may be hard for a lot of people to comprehend, but is it possible to just feel your muscles getting tight? Is it possible to feel a burning in your hands or your face? Is it possible to just feel what anger feels like, what it actually feels like? So much of the time when we're offloading our anger that is we're taking our anger out on somebody one of the reasons that we're doing that is because anger is too painful to feel it just burns us up so how do we get to a place of restorative anger which often takes the company of another person like a therapist a teacher a loved one who is just able to sit with us and just let us feel the burning and The hatred or whatever is there without acting on it, without screaming, without hitting anyone, without yelling. So the amazing thing, I think it's amazing, and the most powerful thing about restorative feelings is that if we can actually let ourselves do that, and as I said, it often takes help from another person, what we find is that at some point, and it doesn't take that long, those intense, really intense feelings of anger begin to dissipate. Like we get it. Somehow our body gets something in a very embodied and felt way without thinking. It's kind of like, yes, I was really so angry, but feeling that in a way that we're not thinking that, if that makes sense. We really get in a deep core level, deep down in in our bowels, you know, literally, how anger has gripped us in a way that we didn't really know about because we never let ourselves really feel it. And somehow, again, and this is true for all restorative felt experiences, somehow, some point comes and it starts to wane and we feel a sense of relief, like our body gets something that it didn't even know about before. It never got before. And that's the parasympathetic nervous system coming online and moving us to a place of rest or peace or compassion or love. All of those things can happen even with allowing ourselves to feel angry. We might come to a place of forgiveness for the person who did something to us that you know, some trauma that we experienced because we finally stopped fighting with ourselves over how angry we are. Or we stopped fighting with other people. And we just let the feeling come. That has what I call restorative qualities. So, grief is another example. We can, you know, if we've lost someone who is very dear to us, it's very difficult to, you know, there are those stages of grief that have been written about, first by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And the first stage is denial, where we're not admitting to ourselves. or something we're not getting about, that that person is no longer here and no longer with us. And it takes months and even years to come to a place of restorative grief, especially with a big loss, like a parent or someone we really love, or a child or a spouse where we can just let ourselves cry, just let ourselves feel loss without explaining it to ourselves, without thinking it through. We just become overcome with grief. And again, when we allow ourselves to do that, something shifts inside of our bodies and a sense of relief comes and we move toward a place of acceptance Yes, they're gone, and I've been holding all this inside of me, and maybe you think that, but it's more like your body kind of gets something in a kind of truth about your fundamental embodiment or your fundamental existence that doesn't really require an explanation or a thought process. Your body just gets it. And again, that shifts us into this parasympathetic state which is fundamentally healing, because when we're in a parasympathetic state, well, let me back up, when we're in a sympathetic state of arousal, which is where we are most of the time, I'm there now talking to you about this, the sympathetic nervous system automatically slows down our digestion, for example. It keeps us from our feelings. It slows down our hormonal systems. It shuts off a lot of basic body functions in favor of getting the job done or in favor of surviving. When we're in a parasympathetic state, that means that all of our organ systems, and I mean all of our organ systems, cardiovascular, urinary, reproductive, sexual, respiratory, all of a sudden they can begin to function normally or they can begin to work again. Our heart rate slows down, our breathing slows down our hormones flow in a more normal way. So that gives our body a chance to repair itself. And it actually activates the immune system to send repair cells to places that we've overstressed because we've been too caught up in doing or worrying. When we're in those sympathetic states, our immune system is secreting what are called inflammatory cells. And we need those repair cells to kind of help rebuild the tissue that's been inflamed. So if we stay in sympathetic states, modulated and dysregulated states, for too long, we're likely to develop illnesses and ailments. So we really need this restorative state, which I have to say most people either don't know about or don't give themselves the opportunity to take it because we're just always too busy. But we absolutely need that for our fundamental health and well-being in the world.
0: And you say that we can't modulate or think our way into restorative embodied states. So how, how do we get there, or how do we open up the possibility of getting there?
1: Well... I found that, well, okay, let me back up and say, I use the example of emotional intelligence. I feel myself getting dysregulated. I feel myself getting angry or irritated or annoyed or whatever it is, and I talk myself down, you know, using my modulated, task-positive network. So, moving from dysregulated to modulated, is something that most people can learn. And it's something that most people are willing to do because it's actually doing. You know, I feel like I'm doing something for myself. To get to a restorative state, we have to stop doing. We have to stop doing. And this is where a lot of people draw the line. They can't stop doing. We have to surrender into that grief we have to let go of what we've been holding on to in a way that we may not have ever had an experience of doing. And that's why I said we usually need a helping hand. We need somebody holding us to really let ourselves cry, for example. We're upset about something, we're agitated, and we go to a loved one, and that person doesn't say anything, he or she just puts... His or her arms around us and all of a sudden we find ourselves surrendering and tears are flowing. That's how we get into a restorative state. We're not fighting ourselves anymore. We're not trying to figure anything out. We're just surrendering, we're just letting go. That is so difficult to do on our own. And it's also difficult to do with another person, especially if we're used to not relying on other people, or if we never had someone on whom we can rely for that kind of comforting, for that kind of solace. So people can get there in certain kinds of therapeutic relationships if the therapist is trained to give space for people to just feel. If it's a therapy that's based in emotional intelligence, that's probably not going to happen, reaching a restorative state. But if the therapy gives room and space for surrendering into feelings with the sense of safety that you get from a particular kind of partner, therapist, you need a sense of safety to surrender. So all of those ingredients are radically different, in my mind, than the ingredients that it takes to move from dysregulation to modulation. And... Unfortunately, I have to say, those ingredients of safety, of trust, of partnership, of secure attachments, and people talk about the willingness to let go, the willingness to surrender, there's not a lot of currency for that in today's world. And I would like there to be more of that because that state is so fundamentally healing. And the only way to get there is by these means of letting go. We can't make ourselves go there. As long as we're thinking it or doing it, we're not there. We're modulating. So how do we stop fooling ourselves that we're feeling something and just let ourselves feel? And again, I just want to say it's not easy. It takes courage. It takes support. But it's so important. It's so important, especially in this crazy world that we talked about earlier today, we all need those spaces where we can just, you know, let go and let ourselves feel without having to do anything about it. So that's what I call restoration. And in a way it's on a continuum with the other two states, but in a way it's like a radical shift from modulation into restoration from dysregulation into modulation is not so radical. It's like, oh, I get that I'm dysregulated. Here's what I can do. You know, it makes sense that we can figure it out. Restoration, we can't figure it out. And if we're figuring it out, we're not there.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that you mentioned how we often think that we're feeling something. And we often hear people saying, I feel like this, or I feel like something is this, when in fact what we're actually saying is, I'm just thinking this. Yes. And in our culture, we're so unfamiliar with raw feeling, with just being present and aware and having that kind of embodied self-awareness that it's a foreign state of experience for most of us most of the time. If not all the time.
1: Yes. I think culture has a lot to do with it because, you know, we go through many years of schooling where we're trained to think, we're trained to do, we're trained to solve problems, we're trained to work things out. There's not a lot of space in schooling for, you know, something more like meditation or relaxation or restoration of any kind. So most of us didn't grow up with that experience. Now, I think the exceptions are people who grow up in families where there is genuinely a lot of support and love and security, where a child learns from an early age that it's really okay to just just feel, to let her feelings express themselves, to say, I'm angry with you mommy or daddy and daddy says, okay, I get that. What about that anger? No, daddy doesn't retaliate. Daddy doesn't ask her to explain anything. He's just saying, I'm here for you. Whatever you feel is okay with me. And there's nothing wrong with feeling. And again, I wanna make a clear distinction between feeling and doing. If a child is acting out and hitting or damaging things, that's not restorative. That's not feeling the anger. That's externalizing the anger. And, you know, that child needs help of some kind to begin to get out of that dysregulated way of expressing anger and into something more modulated. That would be the first step. There are definitely families where... There's time and space to feel whatever we need to feel. There's understanding. There's a sense of grace. There's a sense of acceptance, a sense of belonging. There's forgiveness, you know, all of those wonderful things that we often hear in spiritual or religious contexts are really about, fundamentally about, a way of being human, a restorative way of being human. And indeed, for some people, you know, having a religious experience or feeling the presence of something greater than them is a way to come into a restorative state, to forgive ourselves, to be one with our feelings, to let go of old resentments. So I think not all religions, but certainly some kinds of religious experiences, like securely attached families, do provide a context, or a way for people to reach these restorative states.
0: So then resistance to really feeling our emotions and, and the feelings that arise, you know, day to day, usually is about feeling safe to have and express those emotions and not be shut down or attacked for them or have people try and talk us out of our feelings.
1: Right. Yes, we need to feel, I want to say, fundamentally safe. That is, with this person in this context, I feel like I could share anything and not be blamed for it or not be judged for it or not to have that person ask me a bunch of questions about it. That the person is just there and open and present you know, that's when we can truly open up. That's when we can feel like we can surrender when we're safe enough. And, you know, so many well-meaning parents, when their child gets into an emotional state, they want to know why, they want to talk about it, they want to discuss it. And I think that's all helpful that builds, you know, what we were talking about earlier, it builds emotional intelligence, it builds modulated strategies And it's great. It's much better than if your child throws a tantrum, yelling and screaming at the child. That's totally dysregulated, and I think everybody understands that. So asking a child to explain, helping the child understand their feelings, why did you hit your brother or your sister, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all helpful things. But unless we have this other experience that you and I have been talking about, this person with whom we can just let go and surrender and just feel, and not have to feel we have to come up with an answer, then we're missing, you know, a third of human experience, basically. We're only getting the other two, the modulated or the dysregulated. And, you know, that makes me sad as a person that so many people growing up not knowing that this state even exists and how healing it can be and how comforting it can
0: be. So for most of us who have not had idyllic childhoods and supportive parents and supportive world around us who often or at least on a regular basis experience dysregulated states, how can we go about developing a greater sense of embodied self-awareness that would help us and support us in moving towards opening up to more restorative states?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish I had a really good answer, but I'd say that fundamentally what we really need is an interpersonal relationship in which we're free to feel, in which we're safe enough to feel whatever it is we need to feel. If we happen to be fortunate enough to choose a romantic partner who's secure and who's able to feel and who's able to let us as their partner feel whatever we need to feel, and maybe we never had that growing up, but now we have it with this life partner, that's one way to do it. If we can't find that, then we want to find a therapeutic relationship where the therapist again, allows space and safety for feeling and is not so much on the side of emotional intelligence, you know, figuring out why you feel that way, let's discuss that, let's see if we can work it out, let's find the strategies. There's lots of psychotherapies that are pretty much in that domain, that modulated domain. So I think if you're in the market for choosing a therapist, You want to have a talk with that person before you start therapy. You know, how do you work? What what happens if I have a feeling? How do you handle that? Is there space for me to feel what I need to feel? You know, you can ask questions like that to a potential therapist. And you can also just get a sense, even in a short phone conversation or Zoom call, of feeling a connection with that person. You know, feeling like, That person gets you. That person, you feel safe enough. That person can really understand some of your pain. So those are all cues you can get by interviewing a potential therapist or, you know, friend or partner. You know, these are the things we want to look for if we know inside of ourselves that we're missing something that we're missing the opportunity to just let go that we're missing that sense of safety and we really want that in our lives
0: and perhaps we could even ask the people in our lives to directly support us in those specific ways
1: yes that's another thing we can do we can have conversations with our partners with our friends let's say And we can be honest and we can say, you know, I like that you're listening to me and I like that you're asking me smart questions about how I'm feeling. But sometimes I just need to be held. So I think that's fair game, you know, to ask friends or partners to behave with us in a way that we want them to and see if a change can be made. And maybe maybe it's actually going to be comforting and helpful for both people in the relationship. So relationships, if they have a strong base of any kind, always have an opportunity to deepen in those ways and, and to become more restorative partnerships. So, yeah, that's a great
0: point. So I'm not familiar with the Rosen method. Perhaps you could tell us about how that works and helps to Bring about restorative states of experience in your clients when you're working with them? Uh huh.
1: Um, Rosen Method was originated by Marion Rosen, and she was actually trained as a physical therapist. And she somehow discovered in 40 years of physical therapy practice that, you know, giving people exercises and having them work on something that's painful or whatever, often wasn't enough. That she found that people, when they spontaneously talked about how they got that injury, like they spoke about the trauma and tears came, that somehow people got better faster. That's just something that Marian noticed. I mean, she wasn't a scientist. She was a clinician. She didn't have a language that we have now or that, you know, I have available to me. She just noticed that giving people space to talk without judgment about, you know, something she was doing with their body, somewhere where she was touching them, where it hurt or it was tense, that then the tears could come and then those muscles around the part that was aching began the tension began to release, and people started feeling better and got healthier quicker. So then she started practicing that way. By that time, she was living in Berkeley, California. She had a complicated long history of growing up in Nazi Germany in a Christian family, but it was a Christian family that had converted from Judaism. So it was a family that had a Jewish background, so the father of the family was prescient enough to get the family out of Germany and they moved to Sweden and they they spent time in Sweden and Marion got her physical therapy training and they spent time in England where Marion studied with people who were doing breathwork embodied kinds of practices and then She eventually moved to Berkeley, California, where she set up a physical therapy practice. And then she started doing these things that she had discovered. And several of her patients said to her, this is really amazing work. Can you teach it to me? And by this time, she was about 60 years old. And a few of her patients convinced her that she had discovered something that no one else had quite hit upon. And she began through dialogue with them to develop a way to teach what she did. And eventually training programs were developed. Students were graduated and practitioners. And the fundamental bottom line of it is that through touch we can help people feel places of pain, but because the mind and body are so connected, a place of physical pain it's somewhere in the body is almost always connected to an emotional pain. It's almost always connected to something that happened in childhood, almost always connected to an accident or trauma. And so the method over the years evolved to encompass working with trauma. And in this way that I've been talking about in terms of restorative states, that is allowing memories to emerge, allowing feelings to emerge, And once that starts to happen, to just be present. So there you are as a practitioner. Your hands are on this person. It's as if you're just holding a child, for example, who just needs to cry at that point. And you're not getting in their way. You're just letting the feelings come. And I really don't know of any discipline quite in the same way, so quite explicitly devoted to cultivating what I'm now calling restorative states. I know that they do happen in other kinds of therapies, but I just got so drawn into Rosen Method when I started 20-something years ago because it had that element that I was looking for somehow that I didn't even know that I was looking for because I was hurting and I couldn't find, you know, I did some psychotherapy, I did some yoga, I did some massage. I mean, I received, and nothing quite reached me in the way that the very first Rosen session that I had reached me, so I've been hooked ever since, and then I went on to go into the training program to be a practitioner, and then there's another level of training, which is to be a teacher, which I also went through, which surprisingly deepened me and my own experience in ways that I hadn't even anticipated, so... Yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell, and I find that people, many of my clients, stay with me for years, and it's not because they're dysfunctional anymore, it's just that they realize that when they come to me, they come to a place where whatever happened in the past week or two, they can just let go and surrender into, to and feel, they know that it makes them feel better, and That's the power that's the power of the work. And they keep growing in that way. They develop more capacity for feeling themselves and for letting themselves feel and opening up to, you know, all kinds of human experience and also opening up to other people in new ways. So that's the kind of thing I've seen with the work. And I don't doubt that these same kinds of things happen in other kinds of therapies. As I said before, if you're interviewing a therapist you want to get a sense that they're working in a way that allows for that kind of open accepting safety compassion ability to just feel without having to explain
0: Mm -hmm. so it sounds like a key element of this is having an intention to hold that kind of a space for that kind of a restorative experience to just Arise spontaneously.
1: Yes, that's a great way to put it. It's hard to explain what Rosen method is because there isn't like a goal. Like, you know, in certain kinds of goal focused psychotherapies, for example, you know, there's a goal and I'm going to get over this addiction or I'm going to get better at managing my anger. Or, you know, in yoga practice, there's certain goals or certain postures. And even in meditation, there's you know a goal of maintaining a particular kind of mental state, and Rosen doesn't have a goal because the whole point of it is to get to a point where you let go of all those goals, and you're just in fully in the present moment. And so it's hard to explain that, particularly given what you and I were talking about earlier, which is that most people don't have a life experience of finding restoration. And it's interesting that even with clients I've worked with for years, when they finally get to a point, and it could take years, of having a really genuine restorative experience, it's like a revelation for them. It's like, now I get what we've been doing all these years. But it's like you have to be there. You can't describe it or you can't talk about it it kind of diminishes the actual experience of surrender
0: right and you can't make it
1: happen and you can't make it happen exactly so I can't make my clients go there all I can do is wait for them to drop into a place like that and then I know what that feels like and I know what to do which is to just be there with them
0: And in the last chapter of your book, you share a lot of personal first-hand accounts from various practitioners and patients of different kinds of embodied self-awareness work. Yes. And I especially loved that chapter and, and some of the accounts. And I have a few of them here to read, or if you have your book handy, Perhaps you could read something. Otherwise, I would love to read a couple of things because I think they're just so powerful and revealing of the power of this kind of work.
1: Well, if you're game, I'd love to hear you read and you know, to hear what you picked out, what touched you. That would be interesting to me, and I I would enjoy that. So thank you.
0: Okay. So this is coming from a practitioner, and then in the middle of it, is a line from the patient. During a trauma, patients experience their body and soul as being scattered. Patients become aware of this disconnect between body and mind during the caring touch treatments. And then the treatment puts together all the scattered pieces of my puzzle back and give them a feeling of wholeness. It gives a feeling of coming together the soul gets put back into the body again. After the accident, the soul is damaged. The body is here, but the caring touch treatment is about touching your soul. You relax, you forget, you become as you once were. And then, she says, after the session, she says that the new awareness was like a baby that just needed nurturing.
1: Yeah, I especially like those, too. Those are beautiful quotes.
0: And then, here's another one. I realized that I could think about what I felt in talk therapy, but it was an intellectual process. Now, with Rosen Method therapy, I've learned to discern what I think I feel and what I really can feel. I didn't even know that I can actually feel myself until now. I only knew that I could think. Now I can feel myself, feel love for myself, know that I am present, that I do exist in a visceral way. I would say it takes my breath away, but truth is it gives me breath, the safety to breathe more fully, more deeply, and all the sensations are in color now, so to speak, as if they had been black and white before. Yeah, that's a great one. Thank you.
1: That's Really beautiful,
0: and that last chapter is full of accounts like that, and for me, it just felt so enriching to hear those stories, like going home.
1: Hmm. nice, yeah, I felt like I felt like I needed to do that in the last chapter because I said something in the introduction about the kind of conflict between writing about something that can't really be spoken about were written about. And so I felt compelled to do that in the very last chapter, to let people just speak in their own words about those experiences that in many ways can't be described. But somehow they find a way to choose metaphorical language and poetic language, which can be very evocative and can lead us into you know, like music, certain kinds of music and certain kinds of poetry and certain kinds of drama. Even though people are speaking, we can be moved to tears. And I felt that those excerpts have a way of reaching people at those deeper non-thought levels. So thank you for pointing that out and reading
0: this. So for people who are interested in finding out more about this kind of work, where would, where would you suggest that they go? And perhaps you have a website that has this kind of information.
1: I do have a website, and it's mostly about Rosen Method, and it's about my writings and, you know, things that I'm doing. I do not, on the website, have, like, a referral service. Rosen Method has an international website I think it's called RosenInstitute.net, where you can find a practitioner. There's a place where you can find a practitioner. There's not a whole lot of Rosen practitioners, particularly in North America. There are actually many more in Europe. But you may be able to find one who's willing to work with you that's not too far from you. Some of this work can be done by Zoom. It doesn't involve the touch component, but it involves the same components of presence and listening and compassion that we've been talking about. So, unfortunately, I don't have a ready list of practices that uniformly lead people to these restorative states. What I've discovered, just in getting to know a lot of different people, is that it really depends on the person. So, psychotherapist A and psychotherapist B, you know, psychotherapist A is all into cognitive behavioral therapy and talking through things and emotional intelligence. And psychotherapist B is really much more open to feelings and letting feelings come. And the only way to find out is by interviewing them and even having a test session with them, how it's going to be for you. So, there isn't, aside from Rosen Method, I guess, there isn't one particular modality where people are specifically trained toward restoration. Because the word restoration, as a restorative state of consciousness, really didn't exist until I, I wrote this book. So it's going to be hard to you know go searching for it on the internet, unfortunately. But I think with with due diligence, you can find a practitioner. There's fields like what are called somatic experiencing. There's somatic psychotherapy. There's yoga therapy. There's dance movement psychotherapy. There's a variety of disciplines that I feel definitely have an embodied component and a component of felt experience. And again, you know, it's just up to each person to find somebody near you and to explore that practitioner who he or she is and how open that person is to finding restoration.
0: And also how comfortable you feel with them.
1: Yes, that's a really important part of it, mm-hmm. the sense of safety
0: yeah,
1: and trust. Yeah, thank you for that.
0: Mm-hmm. So the radio station that I'm involved with is actually located on the campus of Goddard College, which actually has a dedicated embodiment studies program. I've had professors and students on my show to talk about their work over the past several years, and this is a wonderful field.
1: Yes, and I'm really glad to hear that, because a lot of embodied studies programs at a university level tend to be at what I would call alternative colleges, like where they teach somatic psychotherapy, for example. They don't tend to be part of the mainstream, for sure. So that makes me happy that Goddard has had the foresight to create a program like that and sustain it.
0: Mm-hmm. And about 45 years ago, I moved into a community in Southern California, where we were doing a lot of this kind of work long before there was much of a language to talk about or describe or even understand what was actually happening. We were just Uh doing the work, doing the practice, feeling into it and exploring this whole new burgeoning territory. That sounds like a
1: wonderful experience.
0: Yeah, it's been fascinating, and it's been wonderful to talk with you and and wonderful to read your book.
1: Well, thank you so much for reading it so carefully, and I've had a great time talking with you. Your questions are, are really right on point and show a deep level of kind of knowing, I wouldn't say understanding, but knowing about embodied experiences, which gave me an opportunity to to share with you the things that are close
0: to my heart. My guest has been Alan Fogel. He's a Rosen Method bodywork practitioner and senior teacher. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Utah and the author of several books on emotional development from infancy to adulthood. His new book that we've been talking about is Restorative Embodiment and Resilience, A Guide to Disrupt Habits, Create Inner Peace, Deepen relationships and feel greater presence. Alan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
1: You're so welcome. It's been my pleasure. And be well. Same to you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. That's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.